just a quick prophetic word. There are some of you that are at a point where you're going, I cannot take any more brokenness in my life. Everything around me seems to be breaking or is broken or is fractured. And I'm going to tell you, God did not bring you to this point in your life to break you and to crush you. This could be one of your greatest teaching moments if you'll simply just press through the pain and lean into what he's doing and trust that he has something bigger in mind. That's one of the hardest things to do, to trust when we can't see what's at the end of the tunnel, right? Right? But that's what faith is, believing in something that we cannot see, okay? So I just want you guys to know that God is about to, for those of you that are in that place, God is about to open a door, and as that door opens, you will see a crack of light, and the door begins to open farther and farther. As you step through the door, you're going to step into the very plan and purpose that he had for your life and for that event that you walk through. Amen? I'm doing the best I can, brother. <laughs> Jay Nurmi, I want you to come up and share a testimony, man. This guy's got a testimony about laying hands on a woman who was out of it at the hospital and what God did. Jay, come on up. Oh. I guess I'll just talk loud, huh? Just be loud. You got this. Uh, this, this lady, Sister Rosie, I've seen, this is the fourth marathon I've seen this happen today. And uh, what happened was she had a massive stroke, a blood vessel to the left side of her brain. It was totally cut off for like six hours, and the family heard a noise in the house, and uh, they thought it was a dog. The next morning at nine in the morning, they found her unconscious on the floor with a big old bump on her head. She was, they, they, they got her to, in her half of her body went more. She could hardly talk. And uh, me and my buddy Bobby, just so happens, he never gets days off on money. Just so happens we were down doing some ministry stuff, and just so happens, boom, we shot through Medford, man. Me and Bobby knew something was going to happen. And so we got Did there, you see that? Well, hold on, hold on a minute. Great expectation. Yeah. 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 So, so, look at out there. The daughter comes running out the emergency room, just crying. Oh, my mom's never going to be the same. Oh, I'm losing my grandma. She can't even, oh, she can't even talk, Carly. So me and Bobby told her, hey, don't worry, you know, God's got this, you know, we'll get this taken care of. I love this guy. So we got up in there, and so we ignored her with the oil, we prayed over, and I tried waking her up a couple times, she popped her eyeball open and shut, and so me and Bobby prayed over her, and we sung over her, and we read the word to her. And then the nurse come in, and the nurse, uh, she came in, and she said, yeah, you know, uh, uh, she started speaking the rosy, and she told us that, hey, you know, she's only, only one arm and one leg, a little bit of movement, and she can hardly talk. So she, so she started uh, talking to Rosie, and Rosie finally <coughs> woke up, and I was like, whoa, you know, because she was out of it. I mean, we tried everything to get her up. So she woke up, and then all of a sudden, uh, she goes, uh, she talks to Rosie, and she said, is your name Rosie? She says, yeah. And she says, the nurse says, you know this guy over here? She grabbed with both hands. She said, Brother Bobby. Well, wait, a, wait a minute. Both you hands, you said both hands? Both hands. Both hands. Yeah, it's true. She said, Brother Jerry. And she grabbed both my hands. The nurse, she was like, whoa. So she, went down, she went down to her feet. And she, uh, she goes, all right, Rosie, move this foot. And all of a sudden, that leg that wouldn't move before started moving. And, and the nurse just said, wow. So uh, I got to see a miracle. Start the new year off. 
So praise Jesus. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, hey, let's move on. And uh, I want to move on to part two of where I think God is taking us a, as a people. But I think there are some obstacles in our way that we have to wrestle with and we have to kind of get out of the way. Any of you that have ever been out running on the trails or four-wheeling or driving or quadding or whatever, sometimes you come to a point where there's something in your way. And you either cut it out of the way or you just go right over the top and keep on going. Okay? So this is one of those moments. I'm going to do a very fast review of what we shared last week. And we talked about Proverbs 29, 18. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. At a time like this, when, the, when we come around the corner into a new year, there's a lot of discussion about what's the vision for the new year. We talked about if we create the plan outside of God and his plans, the onus of maintaining it is on us, and it gets to be work, and if God's not in it, I don't want to be part of it. I want to be where God is co-laboring. I want to co-labor with God wherever he's working at. If I'm out here doing my own thing, which could be really noble and seem good, but if God's not in it, I don't want to be in it. And we talked about what that word in the Hebrew vision literally means. It means the lack of revelatory, God's revelatory word, as in a dream, a vision, something that comes from a divine way, from his word. And if we don't have that mixed in with it, then we kind of go our own way. In fact, we also talked about the word, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. We talked about the word perish and the word cast off restraint in the NIV and translating in the original Hebrew, it literally means to loosen or to expose or to uncover. We talked about that. And literally, it's the same word, the Hebrew word, that ties into Exodus 32, 25, it says, when Moses saw the people were running wild, Moses had come back into camp, he saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so become a laughingstock of their enemies. And a lot of this ties into when we ignore God's word, whether it's the living rhema word of God, the written word, what God is speaking to us prophetically through his word or whatever direction it comes from, if we ignore what he's saying, then we become those people who live without restraint and we become a laughingstock to our enemies. Amen? That's just a quick review. And I'll tell you, I think we're in a moment where the world looks at us and at best, they tolerate believers. They put up with us. They tolerate us. But when we see the power of God move and they do too in signs and wonders like Jay just described, something in them changes because they cannot explain that divine power away. I remember, and I've shared this story, my father was in hospice, he was in incredible pain, and, and bells and whistles would go off, and the nurses would come in to answer the bells and whistle calls and look at all this stuff, and he'd go, hey, hey, I'm going to see Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in just a few days, moments, I don't know, but there's, is there anything I can tell him for you? And there was a nurse there, I called her Nurse Ratchet, she was ornery, and she goes, does one of these to me, and I thought, whoa, 
So I go out in the hallway and I thought, is she going to chew me out for something? She goes, who is that man in there? I said, that's my father. I know that. And then she kind of softened. She said, no, but who is he really? We have never seen anyone in that kind of pain and in that kind of deep part of their journey where they could care less about what's going on with them and they're more concerned for others. We have never, ever, ever seen that. And I said, he loves Jesus. And she looked at me, and I mean, she was misty-eyed. She said, I'm going to have to think about this. She ended up coming to my father's service. Do, do you see the impact? Yes. Guys, we got to pray for more boldness. We have to become more bold. Max said something really profound at men's meeting the other morning. And, and, and Max, correct me if, if I got this wrong. But it's like the, le- the more we stay quiet and not speak up and find our voice in this moment, the harder it's going to be to get back in the game later on. So this is really a season and a moment of us finding our voice. Amen? Let's move on. Conversely, in that scripture, it tells us when we heed God's word, we're blessed. So when we do what God tells us to do, even though it may be hard, even though it may be a lot of work, even though we got to press through, even though we got to get outside of our comfort zone, we're going to be blessed. And I want us to be in this tribe that people were blessed and highly favored of the Lord. Amen? Amen. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35. Verse 35, I'm going to read to a little, probably 38. And I want to go on to part two of where I think God is taking us. Yes, God has a plan. God has a purpose and vision, not only for your individual lives, but for all of us as well. And, And if we follow his plans, we follow his purposes, we'll be exactly where God wants us to be. Amen? Matthew 9. 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, now let's stop there for a moment. Jesus is going through every town. Every village that's on his journey where he's going, and he's teaching, he's proclaiming the good news, and he's laying hands on the sick, he's speaking. He, I'm, you guys get the idea that Jesus is really, 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 really busy here? He's super busy. Yes, yes, he is God, but he's also man. And I can only imagine he's reaching a point where he's going, whew. And we read in the scriptures where Jesus will pull away for that moment where he has that just intimate time out with Jesus, or with God, his Father. And he just pulls away from the crowd. But then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Look around, guys. There's all kinds of stuff to do. There's a lot that needs to be done. And he says, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then he says, ask the Lord of the harvest 
therefore to send out workers into the harvest field. Now, a lot of times this scripture has been used for missionary work and, and things of such, but I'm telling you, this, this scripture applies to all of us, every one of us, not just to a certain group of missionaries who are sent out to foreign countries. It applies to all of us. You know, when we come to this moment and we look at God's purpose and His plan and we go, yeah, let's just do this. Let's go forward. You ever had a moment where you're like, yeah, let's do this. And you turn around and everyone who you thought was with you is no longer there. <laughs> you ever had that moment? I can remember one time we're down on the Rogue River. And it's about eight of us standing on this rock that's like 3,000 feet above the water. Not really, but. <laughs> and we're all like, you go, you go. No, you go, you go, you go. No, you go. Count of three, we're going to go. One, two, three. And then you're the one that leaps. And about 15 minutes into the fall, you look around and there's no one falling with you. <laughs> you hit the water, you come up, and you're, like, and you're looking up there, and they all look like third grade kids just going, ah! or they've run back to their cars to leave. <laughs> I think we're in a moment like that. Now, I'm, I'm speaking in general terms because I talked to a brother the other day who was part of a huge church in California, and he just said, we had to go back to one service because everyone has just, to the wind. They've just disappeared. They've gone home. And it so blesses my heart to look around and see all of you here today. It's wonderful to see you guys. But what a lot of leaders are wrestling with today is, is those who have gotten used to sleeping in and watching church in their pajamas on Sunday morning or whenever they choose to watch, and they're not going to church. Right. Now, I'm not getting religious on you because I'll explain this, but he, it, it's the people who have disengaged from church because they found it just doesn't fit their lifestyle, and they just don't want to participate anymore. We're in that moment. And I asked this question. I said... Last week, I left you with this question. Why should I go to church? Why should I go to church? And, and some of you sent me some really wonderful emails and texts, and they're really good, but I want to point to something I think we've missed historically. Okay? So that's kind of where I'm going this morning. You know, when you get to this moment, you look around, and there's hardly anybody showing up, and I know you meet with elders and you start meeting and talking with people and other pastors in Church of the Valley meetings and we get to talk and it, it's easy to want to jump in and go, we need a vision, we need a plan, we got to come up with something and, and, and maybe what can we do to fix this situation, what can we do to make the church more appealing, what can we do to make this building more appealing, could we get like some neon lights outside flashing and get some music and like it's all a party and everything's just going on. Or maybe, maybe we could buy the parking lot down the, that big old empty lot down at the bottom of the hill. We could pave it and we could get some camels. And we could give everyone that experience of riding a camel through the desert to get to church. <laughs> so I'm taking an offering for camp. No, I'm just kidding. Do you hear what I'm saying though? Every week a plethora of these notices come through email about... For $19.95, we'll sell you a seven-page program that will take your church to a next level. It will bring thousands of... In fact, the, the buses will be rerouted to your door. 
and thousands upon thousands of people, you won't know what to do with all the people. That's a real deal. It's happening all the time. I don't even click on those anymore. I don't even want to go there because I want to hear what God is saying. I'm telling you, we're in this, we're in this moment, and I believe there are moments that are better teachers than most. And I think this is one of them. And I think if we listen to what God is speaking, we're going to press through this, and we're going to really see God lifted up and God glorified in a way that we have yet to experience. Amen? You're still with me. That's a good thing. Um, how many of you, this is just me, the Barnum Report, the Barnum Reports, does anybody listen to the Barnum Reports or watch any of that? A few of you do. Yeah, it, it's really just a group that takes data from faith and Christianity-based places, and they start putting it together. Ernie Stone turned me to Barnard Reports. It's kind of fascinating because it gives you an idea of statistically what's going on across our country. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that a lot of, there is a, well, let's just say, there's a high percentage of Christians who identify as Christians. I'm a Christian, but yet they don't have any theologically rooted reason for why they should even go to church. They have nothing anchored in the Word of God. And I think if someone was to ask you that question, why should I go to church? Would you be able to answer it in a way that passed on a conviction to them that would grab their heart and, and make them realize, I need to check this out? So, I've got a few common answers I wrote out here that I kind of grew up with and I've heard over the years, and you probably have too. The first one is, why should I go to church? Well, because it's the right thing to do. Who, who went, eh? Thank you. Thank you. We should go to church because that's the way God wants us to spend our Sunday mornings. That, that kind of has a religious tone to it, doesn't it? And, and I think really, in all honesty, this is kind of a typical Christian stereotype answer that rings with some self-righteous this tone of imputing our own value system on everyone around us. I go because it's the right thing to do. And you should too. I'm telling you, in this culture today, they're not going to hear it. This current culture, that means nothing to them. Here's another one that I grew up with. I distinctly remember my stepmom telling me one time. And then my dad. My dad used to go down and I would help him. We'd light the fires out in Sunny Valley at the Grange for Sunday, Sunday school morning. And we would go down, and we'd light the fires very early to warm the building up. And then we would walk back to the house, and typically we would change our clothes and then come back for the Sunday school meeting. Well, I remember one time we were running a little late, and my, uh, my dad took off, and I started to follow him. And he turned around, and he said, you need to stay here. I said, why should I? Why should I? He goes, it's for your own good as my dad walked away <laughs> towards home because I knew he wasn't going to come back. Have you ever heard someone tell you that? My stepmom, I said, why are we going to church? Because it's for your own good. You know, you know that going to church is the best thing that you can do for your life. Gosh, when we do that, it seems as if we're projecting that church attendance is the best thing for them. And I think that can really come across pretty arrogant. And, and I think another thing is when we answer this way, we imply that we know the self-interest of the person sitting across from us better than they do themselves. That doesn't work very good, does it? 
That causes for a lot of friction. Now, I know, I know, and I'm pretty confident that most people are pretty good at acting in their own self-interest. I know, and I know, though, there are those times when we have a prophetic word for that person to help them get back on track, right? And those are tough times, but I believe at the end of the day, in all honesty, I think that we should have a theological underpinning as to why participation in church matters. Amen? I hope I'm not going to lose some of you guys in this. But I think surely as something as central to our faith, such as going to church, should have a theological answer that's based on God and His Word. Now, as of about 30 years ago, here was an answer that I thought was a good answer. And it was, I go to church because it's about the Christian teaching. Okay? Those of us that are older in here, we remember a time when there was a scarcity of religious material and training and teaching, and the only place you could find it was in the church. In fact, until sometime during and after World War II, that's kind of when, when it became an industry in terms of Christian publication, and, and, and there was... Prior to that, there was really almost no way to get any kind of Christian teaching at all outside of the church. Maybe there was a few radio shows online, but, but typically if you wanted to learn about God, where did you go? You went to church. I remember my grandfather, he was at the end of a, a tail end of World War I, and then he was during, in during peacetime before he mustered out. And he was a Marine, and he talked about how in the foxholes, they would take Bibles and literally take them apart very, very carefully, and everyone was getting a word. They would pass a scripture out, and you carried that scripture with you with all your heart. There was such a scarcity of that kind of information. They were so blessed and so glad to be, he said, it became almost like a money in the sense that I'll trade you two for one, I'll trade you this for that. They were very, very valuable because it was in those trenches that was the only thing that was bringing hope was the Word of God. But boy, have times changed. Haven't they? You know, we have Christian books, we have Christian magazines, then after that, remember the little cassettes? The Christian, I had, I was going to bring some and pass them out. Who wants a free cassette? <laughs> People look at you, what's a cassette? My wife had a show and tell in a kindergarten class years ago, and a kid brought this big old phonograph record. And one of the kids made a comment. What was it, honey? The, that was, boy, that's the biggest. Yeah, that's the biggest CD I've ever seen. Oh, my goodness. I just threw myself off. <clears throat> so, we have sermons and podcasts and all the stuff that's available at our fingertips. You know, anyone who's interested in Christian learning today, anything about growing in God, we've gone from being forced to go to church to find out about it to simply sitting in front of our computer and letting Google take care of it for us, and we end up watching stuff. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that changed the world. That changed the world. What's most interesting to me is that there have been pandemics, COVID and other, there's been pandemics before bluebonic plague, all kinds of pandemics, but, but the, and the churches, they had to wrestle with those things in those times as well, 
And we read historically that a lot of times during those times, people didn't run from the church. They ran to the church because the church was the only point of hope. The church was the only place where they could get that kind of information. And, and, and pandemics and church closing, this really isn't nothing that, that's that new. What, what's, what's new is that in those moments, there were no other sources of information for people to plug into. So they obviously went to the source they knew, and that was the church. I believe that we could possibly be living in the first global dis- disruption of church where a scarcity of teaching is no longer a force because it's, it's everywhere now. And I think if people want to learn about God, they don't necessarily have to go back to church. They can go online. Am I right? It's there. So has the internet destroyed the church? No. Absolutely not. I don't believe so, but I do think that it's putting a light on the weakness, on a weakness of something that's going on, and that's kind of where I want to go today really quickly. I think that there is a great theological answer to the question of why people should go to church, but I think it's one that we've overlooked, and I think it's one that we have to go back into our history as a people and as a church. We have to go way, way back to 1517. Does anyone know what 1517, what's so significant about that date? 1517. Cyril. It was the Protestant Reformation. It's when Martin Luther, who was an, what do you call it? uh, He was a friar. He was a professor. He was a German priest. He was a theologian. This guy was a big hitter. And he had some questions, in fact, 95 questions. So he comes up to the church, pounds his 95 theses, on the wall, he wanted answers, he wanted to debate, he wanted to talk about these issues, he wanted reform. And, and I think this Protestant Reformation, out of that came a group called the Reformers. And the Reformers led this incredibly new church movement that left the Catholic Church and eventually split into thousands and thousands of different Protestant denominations. Did you know that? The Reformers believed that the Catholic Church had lost her way, okay? And only going back, by going back to the authority of the Scripture could authentic faith be rediscovered. It was a dark and tumultuous time in the history of the early church. There was like a 30-year war before a treaty was signed. It was blo- I mean, it was brutal time in church history. But one of the things that the Reformers pushed back on was the Catholic Church had this emphasis on church as an institution, You hearing me? Church was an institution. So Martin Luther, for example, he he resisted the idea that the church had any special grace to mediate to believers uh, that special grace from God. In other words, he pushed back on the thought that the priests and the church officials were the only ones who could mediate grace from God to others. He said that grace resides in God and God alone. And he's the only one who can impart that grace to others. Game changer. Big game changer. It was this idea of this top-down grace that it had to come through this big hierarchy, and, and as it did, it could be then dispersed to others. Man, the reformers, they pushed and rightly resisted and pushed against that kind of abuse of spiritual authority. In this, the reformers recast the church in a very distinct way. 
individuals, they saw, they, let me back in my note, I say, they saw the church as a group of individuals. It wasn't this big institution. It was about the people, not the institution. Individuals are what have a relationship with God, not the institution. It's individuals that are redeemed and saved by God, not the institution. Do, do you see what happened here? And they saw that, and they held on to that. And they went on to thinking that because God values us personally, the church now is being viewed as a collection of people who are following Jesus. Isn't that what we are? We're a group of people who are gathered together following Jesus. But if you've ever heard that phrase, the church isn't the building, it's the people, that's where that sentiment came from. It came from the Reformation movement. And what really happened was it moved the needle it really moved the needle from an us of the institution to me, an individual. Game changer. You mean I have personal access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? You mean I can talk to him? Of course you can. And that's what that proved out. You, you mean I don't have to go and stand in front of the, the priest or some church official to get blessed and, and, and to get there? No, you don't have to. God alone pours out his grace on you. But, but there's more to this, though. Let's follow this thinking through. And I think you can see why our understanding of the benefits of church in terms of a place we can go to get teaching and training has played out the way it has, okay? If faith is about individuals meeting God, then the church exists to help individuals on their journey with God. Does that reason out? So if that's the case, then the church should <clears throat> function as a source of discipleship. It should function as a source of teaching. It should function as a source of training and the like. And all of this plays through perfectly in a situation where there is a scarcity of faith resources. Do you guys have your head around that? You understand that? until the internet comes along and undermines the scarcity of faith resources. Now, there's part of us that really wants to celebrate that. Um, it, I don't think it's a bad thing that we have more resources when it comes to faith. Do you? I, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think it also reveals something else. It reveals that our practice as a church in history has been driven more by functional need because there was a scarcity of information than, than having some kind of theological grounding as to why we go to church. Hmm. Got real quiet in here. As much as the Protestant Reformation was important, I think in that moment in history, we could have possibly thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Those of you who have ears to hear, listen. Again, during the Reformation, the church needle went from the institution, it was about the institution, swung clear over here to it's about individuals. Perhaps I want to propose to you that there is something God is doing that is so incredibly important in the us of church that transcends the you and me that our current understanding allows for. 
Does that make sense? To begin to explore this, we have to go back to this biblical thread of the Old Testament temple. And, and the Old Testament temple, temple was a place, uh, was the dwelling place of God. Most of you know that. It was the seat of his rule. It was simultaneously a building. Before that, it was a tent. But it was here on earth. It was God's throne room in heaven. It was a place where heaven and earth met. It was the one place that wasn't heaven or earth, but it was heaven and earth together. Tony, I want you to watch this video. It's a short video, The Bible Project. They've hooked up with the vineyard. This is, um, I love their stuff. It's short, it's simple. Bible times. The biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. <clears throat> but instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right, 
Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. Is that powerful or what? You know, as this video articulates, I think very clearly, is that God desires to dwell in creation again. And that begins by him dwelling in his people, right? And God himself, I wrote here, is working to create a home for himself in each of us individually, but also in us collectively as well. Are, are you hearing that? So, so... In the church, in this big body, God joins the family. He fills in the spaces between us. And yes, we're uniquely living stones put together, but God brings us together where Jesus is the head. And again, the spirit which is dwelling in our midst is going around filling the spaces between us. And we become united and we become one in an unbelievable way. The way that God dwells in all of us is distinct from the way I wrote he dwells in each one of us. How God dwells in you and you and you as a temple is uniquely the way he dwells in you and me. We're distinctly different, but yet he dwells in all of us at the same time when we come together. In fact, the New Testament seems to use that word church to refer to any gathering of any size that God is living within. That's powerful. It's that scripture where two or more are gathered in my name. Where's he at? Is he out there in the cosmos? No, he's right there in their midst. Home groups, when you gather, think of that. You're like all of these living stones coming together. And it creates a synergy that is beyond explanation. Synergy is a powerful concept when you think about it. And God created it. It's kind of like there's an apple in the tree and Dan and I are walking along and we want the apple out of the tree, but neither one of us are tall enough to reach up and grab it. So then we debate for an hour who's going to sit on whose shoulders. But once we do, we can grab the apple. That's synergy. So I want to take this full circle. Let's go back to the original question. Why should I or why should we? Let's make a little more that way. Why should we go to church? I can tell you it's because this is the only way to experience being part of a spiritual family, that God is indwelling in a specific way. The only way. 
And yes, I wrote here, we can learn from many different sources. I'm all in on that. But there is a world of difference between learning from a podcast or something you downloaded or, or a tape or a CD handed to you than participating in a spiritual family that God is filling up with his presence and his rule. It just is. It's only by being an active participant in church that we can experience, we can get that experience of being part of a type of the temple of the Lord that he wants to build in our midst. I believe that with all my heart. Yes, faith comes by hearing, but faith also comes by experience. And this is what's so unique about being a dwelling place of God. I love coming together. I, I love being in his presence. This morning, the worship went to another level. The last two Sundays, I don't know if you've noticed it, but we've gone to a higher praise. We had our leaders meeting, and I was talking to Lewis and others about that, that I really think this is the season where God is going to take us to a higher praise. I don't even know what that means, but I know what it feels like. And watching all of you guys on the stage this morning owning it, you've bought into the fact that, man, I'm yours, Father. Take me there. Take us all there. Did you feel it this morning? It, it's not about the song selections. It's not about this thing they put together. It's about when their hearts are here and your hearts are here and the synergy is created and God goes, hey, I'm going, and he shows up. And he fills in all the gaps between us. That's why when people walk through the door, they go, man, there's something going on here. I feel a level of love here like I've, I have not felt that anywhere before at this level. How many can attest to that? Yeah. I wrote here, yes, in a different way, we are all dwelling places individually. I do not want to discredit, discredit that because you are you uniquely created in the image of God. God has an individual plan and a purpose for every one of your lives, and I think that's incredibly important. But only when the church gathers together do we experience being part of a spiritual family that includes and transcends us. It's bigger than us. Amen? So, I... I just got a couple, can I have a couple more minutes, guys? Yeah. I, I just have a couple of things I want to finish up with. When, when we look at church through this lens, when it's, when it's moved from, it's not just about me individually, but it's about us corporately together. And when we can get our head and our heart around that, I, I think what's exciting to me is the church becomes a gathering that includes people that we know well and people that we don't know well people like us, and people who are very different than us. I don't know why you all aren't like me with one arm. I don't know, but <laughs> that's the way God created me. You guys catch what I'm saying. You are uniquely you. But I'm telling you, when there is something about a bond that God creates when we come together in his presence, Mario Murillo um, um, conference we went to, the Living Proof Crusade, you walked in that building and you immediately felt kindred spirit. 
You ever gone to another, to another place like that and it, you, the presence of God is filling the place and you just feel a kindred spirit with people you don't even know? People you don't even have anything to do with in terms of life, but yet when you walk through the door, you feel this, oh my goodness. I can go up to um, our kids' church up in Seattle, Seattle Revival Center, walk through the door, and I just feel like I'm at home because the presence of God is there. And I think it's important if we're going to talk about this stuff that we have some kind of notable marks for the presence of God being present. You know, the priests in the early church, in the early temple, when they took care of it, they weren't there to take care of the people as much as they were there to take care of the temple so that God would have a really good place to dwell. They weren't concerned about numbers. They were concerned about creating this place where when God came, he felt very comfortable. And that as leaders here in this church, as worship leaders and all the leaders here, we're concerned about making sure that this place stays safe and that God's presence feels comfortable to come here and to dwell. So, I think we can move forward with confidence and we can say, when someone says, why do you go to church? You can say, what do you mean, why should I go to church? You can reply with things like, don't you want to be with God? Don't you want to be with God? If that person replies, what are you talking about? I can be with God anywhere. And then we can confidently respond with that because we have some kind of theological underpinning. We can say that's true, but not in the same way that God dwells in us as a church, as a group, as a gathering. Yes, God will meet you where you're at, but there's something different about when we meet together. The way God, uh, God is among us is a whole different thing than the way and what God does with us individually. Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not stay away from church meetings. Some people are doing this all the time. Comfort each other as you see the day of his return coming near. Why am I saying all that? Why am I saying that the needle has swung from individuals to corporate? I mean, why am I saying all this? Because I think God is creating an army. We have got to learn to fight. We've got to learn to find our voice. We've got to learn to stand up and say, that's enough. That's enough. We've got to be ferocious and stand up for injustices around us. I get it. That's enough. It stops now. We've got to let our voices be heard. But when we come together and do that, instead of just one yelling, when we all begin to, to shout out the same thing, we've had enough, what happens? The world hears that. You know, I wrote here, I can't help but think that it's much better to have a smaller family with a strong indwelling presence than a large family with a weak indwelling presence. <clears throat> a group of Christians that isn't, a group of Christians that God isn't living between isn't a church, it's a crowd. There's a lot of big crowds out there that you do not see God living between. Guys, the point is, it's, just, it's, it's not just the people, it's the quality of God living between us. God wants to dwell among his people. So, I can answer this question. Why should I go back to church? Because God is seeking, I wrote, to live in spiritual families that are houses for him to live within. And only by being part of one 
Can I know and can I walk with God in that way? Sure, I can opt out. I can opt out for some really good teaching. There is some good teaching on the internet. There is, and I'll be the first one to say that. I love listening to Bill Johnson and some of the others that are out there on the internet. I, I really like that. But I want to know what it is to be a living stone in a spiritual house. Not just a rock sitting out by myself. I will experience, if, if, if I become a loner and I become separated from the body, I can be individual, me before Jesus, I get that. But I'm telling you, I will experience God in me, yes, but not God in us. And as, as a result of that choice, both my life and the world around me will be poor for it. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, they alluded to this scripture on the video. It says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That. I love that. To be holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I'm a living stone, and so are you. And I hope you can get your heart around the thought that yeah, I go to church because I want to be, because I know I'm a living stone, and I want to group up with other living stones. And I want to experience God in a way that I cannot alone. I cannot explain it, but there is something about the synergy of us gathering together, again, that transcends any other thing I've ever known, us together. Does that make sense? Let's stand. We're going to close with a song, and I just want you to, this is between you and Jesus, and it's God and us, and we're just going to crank it up, and I just want you to just ask the Holy Spirit to go down the corridor of your heart, and if you're struggling with, where do I fit in all this? Just let God speak to your heart. Amen. That you would be mindful of us. What do you see? That's worth looking our way. Jason, you want to take it up a little more? Listen to the words. We are free. In ways that we never should.
Scott, would you come up and close us in prayer? Oh, Father, <clears throat> search your hearts. Yes, Thank God. you for your, your grace speaking to each of us. Thank you for our church yes. body encouraging mm. one another, mm. growing together into that spiritual house. Yes. We are rocks. We're mm. stones, living stones. Thank you, Jesus. Bless each one. Father, help us to remember, meditate what is our part mm. of this, your body, <clears throat> this specific body and the body, the, the church around the world, around our, our city. What is our part? Thank you, God. Amen. 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 Thank you.